Let's take our Bibles this morning, Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, we're working through uh, specifically in the book of Philippians, the opening, the introduction of Paul's letter to this church in Philippi, the region of Macedonia there and what is now uh, called Greece. And uh, it was broken up in different regions uh, in Paul's day, but they're still the same type of people there. Uh, what kind of people? Uh, the only kind of people that have ever been humans created by God who have gone astray to do their own things. And by the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ, the light of the glorious gospel shone to these people in this region of Macedonia, the chief city called Philippi. They turned from idols to serve the living and true God, and they began a new walk in Christ. And now, as they're walking in Christ, they need some encouragement. They need some help. So God sends them a man named Epaphroditus. He's the pastor there. And Epaphroditus realizes how much help he needs. And so he goes and, and he f- seeks out other help. And he actually con- contacts a man by the name of Paul. And he says, I need some help. And Paul says, I remember some great days back in the day. I remember some great times we had back in the day there in Philippi. And even though it kind of started rough, it's amazing to see what God's doing in that church. And so he's writing to them this letter, and he's not critiquing, cutting, rebuking, convicting. There's times when he has to do that. But this church fills him with so much joy because they are just all green lights. Let's serve God, even though it's really hard. And so they do. And with that, the joy of the Lord is their strength. So they get strength from God, and it brings joy. And Paul is writing to them, and he, and he says, one of the things that I do for you guys, I pray for you. And I don't just pray, Lord, help them to have a good day. I pray spiritual prayers. And that's what we find here in Philippians chapter 1, verse number 9. <clears throat> Excuse me, I need to take a drink of water. Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. Paul says, And this I pray, first, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. He's praying that their their love would overflow, continue to grow, knowing more and making good decisions, making good, having good judgment. That's the first prayer request. Number two, that ye may approve things that are excellent. Well, in whose eyes, to whose perspective is this excellence? Well, God's definition of excellence is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he says in Philippians chapter 2, uh, he, he, he cast everything that he had on his resume, threw it in the trash. He said, I'd rather have the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. If I could throw everything out and get that, I would. <clears throat> And so Paul said, I'm praying for the Philippians that you would have a life that matches Jesus Christ. He's praying that their love would overflow more and more and that they would become more opinionated about what pleases God rather than what pleases themselves or others around them. Believers, we are to be more opinionated about the word of God. Not as it makes us feel important, but as it glorifies him. You ought to have a strong opinion about what God expects from you. And you ought to take that 
and, and, and grow in that to please him. So he said he wants to, he wants one of them to approve things that are excellent, get rid of some stuff, get better stuff. Not just materially. We're all good at doing that as Americans, but spiritually. So approve things that are excellent. So maybe your prayer life is not what it should be. Well, keep praying, but maybe do something better with your prayer life, right? You're reading your Bible, and that's good. If you're not reading your Bible, you should start. You can't be a Christian without the Bible. The Bible is the foundation of all things. You've got to have the Bible. But if you're reading your Bible, and maybe you're not uh, doing it as well as you'd like, well, then approve things that are excellent. Try something else out, and if it's better, hang on to that. Keep making progress. And then the third request is this. In verse 10, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. Now, we're going we're gonna to focus in on verse 10, where he says, sincere and without offense. That's what our focus is today, our topic. But I want you to see, before we jump into this, the day of Christ. A little bit of housekeeping here. The day of the Lord is the theme of the Bible, over and over and over again. If you take it just from sheer numbers, the day of the Lord, the Lord's day, uh, the day of our God, over and over again, it mentions that. And that's the Father's day, God the Father. Uh, Jehovah, that's his day. Uh, Jehovah God, the Father, is connected with his bride, and the bride of God the Father is Israel. Israel, the nation of Israel, the people, the Jews, are his bride. And then you have what's called the day of Christ. The day of Christ is the Son's day. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it's his day. So the day of Christ is also connected with the woman, the church, which is his bride. That is the one that we are born again into, the church. When you get saved, you're baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. It's not physical water baptism that puts you in the, in the body of Christ. It is the spiritual baptism. Therefore, are we baptized by one spirit into one body? That's the spiritual baptism. He puts us into the body of Christ. And that's the church. That's his bride, the bride of Jesus Christ. So he's talking about the day of Christ. He's talking about a very key prophetic event because both the day of the Lord and the day of Christ have a key prophetic event. So you see, you've got God the Father, his bride is Israel, and the key event connected with his day is the second advent. When God the Father finally sees his son vindicated on the earth. So that's the day of the Lord, Israel, second advent. With the day of Christ, you have Jesus, the son of God. His bride is the church. And the key prophetic event that's connected with the day of Christ is the rapture. The rapture of the church is not the day that, he, that Christ is vindicated on the earth. It is not the day when he appears to the world and he takes over the nations. No, this is a secret catching out of his bride. And he says, you, I, I, I want to have my bride with me. I'm going to come in like a thief in the night and I'm going to steal her out. That's you and I. If you're saved, he's going to steal you out. So what, what Paul is praying is that I'm, I'm asking God 
that you will be sincere and without offense till Jesus comes to get you. Does that make sense? I want you to be sincere without offense till the day of Christ. Now, let's, let's look at this passage here, and we're going to basically, it's going to be very simple, and, and, and I, I trust that it'll be helpful to you, but sincere, we're going to define the words, and then we'll make some application. Let's define the word sincere. Sincere means to be free from pretense, to be uh, genuine, acting normal, who you really are. So a person is saying, when they're, when they're sincere, they're saying what they genuinely feel, what, what they genuinely believe. They're not being dishonest. They're not, uh, they're not hiding anything. They're not holding their cards, so to speak. So if you, let's say, let's say someone says, oh, that's such a nice outfit. And you think, oh, wow, I guess I do have good taste. And then that person walks away and you notice that they roll their eyes like that. Then you begin to question whether they are sincere. All right, because if you were sincere, you wouldn't act like you didn't mean what you said. You said what you meant, and you meant what you said. That's being sincere. Sincerity means being completely honest about what you feel or what you mean. So let's say, for instance, a guy says, uh, I want to go swimming in a lake. And I look at him, and he's, he's wearing swimming trunks. I feel he's probably pretty sincere. He's going to jump in the water. He's going to go. Why? He's not saying, oh, I'm going, and then he doesn't have any clothes to wear. Maybe he just jumps in with a suit. But most people wear trunks to go in. And so you say, that guy's really sincere about that. Or, uh, you know, you, you see someone with their keys, and they're saying, I need to go to the store. Well, you know they're fairly sincere because they got their keys in their hand, especially when you're a teenager. You carry those keys around. You know, yeah, I just got to go down and get a few things. I got to... Uh, just take a quick trip down, um, just in driving. I'm going to be driving in, in a car. You know, how teenage, you know, it's really exciting when you first, and then nowadays, it's for me. Does anybody else want to drive and do the stuff that I'm supposed to do? Anybody else want to go and drive for me? That would be great. <laughs> Amen. But sincerity, you got to connect those things together. So uh, I, heard, I heard about a, a boy who, who wrote a letter to his mom. And uh, you know how you put sincerely in the note? And so he knew that sincerely meant that you really mean what you say. And, and so he wrote this. He said, Dear Mom, I sincerely wish you would stop cutting my sandwiches into heart shapes. Sincerely yours, Kurt. <laughs> sincerely. I would really sincerely like you to stop doing it. It reminds me of uh, my son, Nate, when he was just in kindergarten, I think. And uh, when he first came, they didn't know his name. And uh, I think that they started calling him Nathaniel because that's his full name. And he was very upset about being called Nathaniel. And so he, he took out a piece of, of tape or something like, I don't know what it was, but he wrote Nate down. must have been in first grade. I don't think he could write in kindergarten. And, and he wrote Nate down and he put it on his forehead right here. And she said, oh, you want to be called Nate, Right. He was sincerely, stop calling me Nathaniel, right? His, his, his actions uh, aligned with his words. He wanted to make sure that he was called the correct name. So it means being really honest, open, sincere. 
It means being the same in actual character as in outward appearance, right? So you're not pretending to be something that you're not. You are actually who you are, and you are trying to be what you are, whether you're behind closed doors or whether you're in public. So there were some guys over in France that wanted to help this. You know, social media presents a lot of opportunity to be fake. You ever notice that? And, uh, and, and so, so there's some guys in, in France that decided they wanted to develop an app that would help people be real. And so they came out with an app, and guess what they called it? They called it Be Real. Wasn't that amazing? And, uh, and the point of it was, okay, you have a two-minute window every day in which you can post a picture of yourself and your environment, your surroundings, and um, you have to do it within that two minutes um, or you don't get to post. That was the original idea. And, uh, and, and why? Because the, the app developers, they were saying, people, you know, they're always primping and prepping and posing and, you know, filtering everything out, right, of their face, uh, everything out of their hair, fix it. You know, nowadays you can be a dog, you can be a man on the moon, whatever you want to be. And the, all those filters. So the Be Real guy said, no, we want to have just a straight up, where are you? You know, I'm skydiving right now. Take the picture. And of course, it didn't last very long. Uh, now all they do is slap your, slap your wrist if you don't do it. But, you know, then they also show people how many takes that you took. You know, how many times did it take you to pose naturally? Um, and, and the whole point of the app is that, guys, we need to be real. We need to be real. And uh, I don't know anybody here that wants someone to see them while they sleep. No, you ever you ever seen a picture of yourself when you're asleep? You're embarrassing. You're 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 embarrassing to yourself. You know, it used to be when I was a teen growing up in the 80s and 90s, it was it was all about, you know, these candid pictures of the 35 millimeter point and click cameras, remember those? And it was all about taking pictures of people when they were sleeping. You know, and it was so funny. It was all it was it was so awesome. Did you see that picture, you know? And uh now uh, we we see people more than we want to, but but I just thought about that. They, they, the guys on that app, they said this. They encouraged, they, they encouraged users to show their friends who they really are for once. To show their friends who they really are for once. You know, one of the reasons why social media is so dangerous for young people is because they're still dealing with their identity. Who am I? Am I good enough? Am I, am I good looking enough? Am I athletic enough? Am I smart enough? And there's a danger with that because what happens is um, if people around them say, yes, you are, yes, you are, yes, you are, and those people are the same age, it really makes it difficult for them to have anything solid. Because you know what a lot of other people are, their age, asking the same questions. And so we got to be careful with that, parents, with, with our kids, that they don't develop their identity around what other people think of them. Because the last thing we want them to do is to be like you. Living your life based on what other people think of you. Now, aren't you glad that you leave that behind when you're a teenager? You don't have to worry about that anymore when you get older? That you don't care about what anybody thinks? You're not worried and bothered by what people say about you or think about you? I'm being facetious, right? Because we do. It's something that we carry with us. And we have to fight that. And some people say, well, I don't give a rip about anybody. And you have to be mean to prove that you don't care what anybody thinks. That's just basically trying to be on the offense rather than the defense. 
You know what we need in, in, in our lives? We need in our churches, in our homes, we need sincere people. People who are real. People who are honest about where they are. Now, I love dressing up for church. I like to honor the Lord. But every good thing that we do comes with a, it comes with a temptation. And one of the dangers of dressing up for church is that you can sometimes think that you leave your problems spiritually behind. When you put on a nice suit and tie, a dress, whatever it might be, you might think that somehow you can present to the public what you are not in private. And, and I'm thankful that people don't walk in and say, here's the problems I got in my life. I'm thankful they don't just dump their dirty laundry everywhere. But I also think there's a danger if we let that gap go too far between what we actually are when no one's looking and what we are when everybody's looking. You know what the Lord wants us to be? Sincere. Now, I don't know much about the etymology of this word, except the idea is that it comes from sincere, like cereal, grain, coming up out of the ground, something that's growing. And the concept is that it's one root. It's, it's sincere is, I don't understand it all, but it's, it's being growing from the same root. So you're not hiding who you are when you come out. You, you are coming out into the public, you're in church, you're with other believers, and you are, you are who you are. Now, if you're like me, you feel a big distinction sometimes, a contrast, and you say, I don't want people to know who I really am. Why not? See, sincerity helps us. Why don't you want people to know? Because I sometimes do stuff I shouldn't be doing. Well, then Stop. Stop doing stuff in private that you wouldn't do in public. You say, well, I don't want to be hampered by that. Then you're going to live a life of insincerity. You're going to have to see this is young people. This is the thing. If you have to hide it when you see your parents coming, then that's your first clue. You shouldn't be doing it. Well, I have to do it. Okay, well, then tell your mom and dad, I'm doing this. I don't care what you say. You see, when, when, someone, when someone says, I am going to do whatever I want, there's a, there's a danger there. We'll see that on the second side of that phrase. It's not just doing whatever you want. I'm going to be real. He also says, and without offense. That keeps that sincerity in check. So what we ought to be is we ought to be open, true, honest. You know what people say? You know why people are not honest and sincere about who they are? Because they, they are scared, they're fearful, they're ner- they don't want to be vulnerable. And I understand there's, it takes time to get to know people. But if you have this mindset as a believer that you, I, I remember hearing ladies, I heard a lady, uh, I heard, I heard a, a pastor who said this about his wife. She said, my wife never left the home without having her hair done. Well, la-dee-da. As if somehow that means you are on another plane from other people. Now, ladies, I'm grateful that you do your hair. Please, get me, don't get me wrong. I'm glad your hair is good. When you walk out of the shower, your hair does not look good, okay? And I'm glad you do your hair. But if you, do, if you can't be seen, 
If you can't be around anybody until you looked perfect, be careful. Be careful. Why? You're not perfect. And if you're trying to present yourself as perfect in front of people, and you know in your heart that you are far from it, you could end up being insincere. Now, what does a guy do? Guy doesn't give a rip. Rolls out of bed, goes over to the mirror. It's like 75 pounds overweight. Looks in there. He's got no hair. He's got rolls everywhere. And he's like, still got it. Walks away. Right? <laughs> still got what? <laughs> what? Okay, so what does a guy do? Well, a guy, you know what a guy, a guy will do? He'll pretend like he knows what he's talking about. A guy will act like, yeah, 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 you know, you got to get it with two levers. You always got to use two levers. That's what I always buy, buy the two-levered one. He has no idea what he's talking about. Yeah, I, I got last year's model, and it's all right. It's all right. You don't have last year's model. All right. Well, I got the best one there is. No, you don't. All right? You're, you're constantly saying and acting, pretending like you know what you don't know. You ever get around a, you know, a, a guy, and this is me, I hang around with Mike Suddeth or Brother Matt Williams, you know, these guys that know cars inside and out. And, uh, you know, Dr. Ruckman used to say, he said, I don't know nothing about cars. You lift up that hood, and I'll say, right there's the problem, you know. And that's, that's the way I feel. You get around those guys, and, it, it, and you don't know, but you feel stupid for not knowing. And so you got to try to pretend like, yeah, I mean, you got to put the, you know, those lug bolts on there. I mean, for sure, tighten them up, you know. I always use a like 75.2 torque pounds of lift and pressure when I put them on there. You don't, you don't even know what you're talking about. But I can't let you know that I don't know. Remember this guy, uh, years ago, I have a couple of, uh, uh, of cousins, Amy and Jana. They're uh, uh, great, great ladies. And, and they were driving together down the road somewhere. And they broke down on the side of the highway. And they're in their early 20s, something like that. And uh, this is before they were married. And, and, and this guy stopped and he saw them broken down. And, you know, there's nothing a guy likes more than helping out the ladies. Just helping them out. He steps out. I'm sorry, all my, all my uh, illustrations are southern people, so forgive me. I'll, I, I understand. It's a bad habit. I'll try to do Toledoans, you know, like this. Where I don't know, I can't. I know, Midwesterns, apples, and things like that. Uh, I'm working on my Toledo accent, all right? He stops at the side of the highway, and, uh, and he says, he gets out. He's like, what's going on? You know, first you got to look like you know what you're doing. You got to walk over there. What's going on, ladies? And uh, they're like, well, it's overheating. There's something we're not sure, well, whatever. And so he, he, he's like, well, I, you know, I'll see what I can do. And he takes out some, I think he took out um, like transmission fluid and put it into the oil reservoir. And um, or vice versa. It was something was way off. Had no idea. And uh, he gets done and he's like, well, I wish I knew more. Yeah, we do, too. But he might have ruined our car. Thanks for that. The opposite of the good, the bad Samaritan stops and hurts you. I don't know. But, you know, that's that's what a guy will do because a guy's afraid of looking stupid. And sometimes you can play a game. And I understand we're supposed to quit ye like men, the Lord said. Uh, play the part of a man. But you know who he's saying that to? He's saying that to men. You know, it's, it's important for us to be sincere, to be who we are. You know the reason why we have problems in our marriages sometimes, in relationships, guys? We can't admit that we don't know. 
And I don't know about you, there's nothing more demeaning to me than my wife questioning my ability in a certain area. You don't question my ability. I am your hero. Repeat after me. I. (laughs) And she just has enough sincerity to say, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm supposed to be insincere and say that you know what you're talking about, right? Guys, sometimes that's the hardest thing. But what the Lord calls us to is sincerity. How about sincerity in your walk with the Lord? When's the last time you actually took inventory of where you actually stand with God. Well, I've been saved for X amount. Don't give me that. I've read through my Bible. Don't give me that. Obviously, I hand out. No, no, I'm asking you to be sincere. Now, I'm not asking you to be perfect. I'm not asking you to be without sin. I'm asking you to be sincere. And, and, And more than that, the Lord is. The Lord's saying, I'm praying for you that you would be honest about where you really are. Paul's praying that God's people would be sincere. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. What happens in our lives, we get ourselves in trouble. And then we have to lie because we can't stand the thought of bearing the guilt and burning shame of having done that. And so rather than saying, yes, I did it, we now lie and try to say that we didn't do it. And what are we doing? We're getting worse and we're going further down into the vortex. Things are getting worse. Yes, you did wrong. And guess what? If you did wrong, you ought to be ashamed with yourself. You ought to feel guilty because what you did was against a holy God. So what should you do? The last thing you should do is try to pretend that you didn't do it. Stop and tell the truth. Say, God, if you have to strike me dead right where I stand, I deserve it. And now I'm not talking about your relationship with Christ, your salvation. I'm not talking about eternal life that's a free gift in, in Jesus Christ. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about your daily reputation and habits it, that you use in this world, the way you act as a human. You ought to say this, God, I'd rather you take me home right now than to lie. Lying is killing America. People cannot tell the truth. Why? I got, uh, one of the reasons they can't tell the truth is because they can get away with it by saying, well, I didn't do as bad as she did. I didn't do what he did. Yeah, but you did what you did. And you ought to own up to it. Listen, if you've done something against your spouse, against your parents, against your, 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 your children, your co-workers, your neighbors, you ought to own it and say, this is where I am. This is who I am. Tell the truth. Buy the truth and sell it not. Sometimes we have a, people build up a habit over years and years and years, and it's little white lies, which are called big, fat lies as far as God's concerned. Little white lies are sinful. Are we okay this morning? That feels like I'm preaching in a morgue or something. The reason why I hope it's because you're really thinking about the the thing of truth. We've got to have truth. If we don't have truth as Americans, then then we end up with the mess that we have. What does everyone do? No one says, you're right, I did it. I shouldn't have done it. It was wrong. They wait until they're prosecuted and they bring in a defense lawyer that proves that they didn't do it. 
All along they know that they did it. Why? They can't stand the thought of being punished for something. And by the way, I'm not the only one who did wrong. He did wrong too. And now we're pointing fingers instead of being sincere. Being sincere. And then we have offense. Being sincere and without offense. Now we all know, and in, in, this is the British spelling in our Bible, because this is a British Bible. It was made and translated in England. And so the spelling is with a C. And that's how they spell it there. We call it here, we spell it with, uh, with an S. It's the same word. We say offense, and the, especially in the case of sports. And the offense is the one that's on the attack. And the word uh, means, it, it comes from a Latin word that means uh, to strike against, to go after, you know. And, and, and so it's the team that's on the attack, the team that has the ball, the team that's at bat, the ones that are going after the other ones. And the defense is the one that's trying to stop those that are on offense, and uh, there's all, isn't it interesting the way we say it, defense, defense, you know, offense, uh, offense, things like that. But, but what, what it's talking about here, and by the way, in Scripture, defense is almost always a good thing. Almost always, because God is my defense. Um, God said he would defend against Jerusalem, he would defend against, uh, Jerusalem against her enemies. If you look at Philippians chapter 1, if you go down and see um, verse 17, well, we, we saw already in verse number six, I'm sorry, verse number seven, he talks about the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And then you see in verse number uh, 18, where is that? What is it? 17, there it is. Uh, Paul said, I am set for the defense of the gospel. He's defending the gospel. And again, defense with a C is not a different word from defense with an S. It's just American spelling versus British spelling. But the point of it is that one is on the attack and one is resisting the attack. So the attack, that's, the, that's really where it comes from, the idea of offense. It's breaking a law. It's breaking a rule. Okay, so you, you, it could be a rule that is a civic law. It's on the books legally or it could be a rule that a person has in their mind, a law that someone, someone thinks is true. They consider it a law in the mind. I'll give you an example. Uh, they have an expectation of, of polite behavior. So it's considered unkind to people in general when you don't offer to hold the door open from them. If you're within five feet, you're walking up and they're walking up, it's considered unkind to just walk in behind, leave the door closed behind you. You're supposed to hold it, right? Uh, it's considered, by the way, some of you don't know this, it's considered unkind for you, at least when people are around. If you're in a public bathroom, it's unkind not to wash your hands, right? It's a, it's a rule of etiquette. So, you know, you don't have to do it when nobody's there, but when they're watching... <laughs> when they're watching, be careful. Okay, some of you are like, where did you, who is your mom? No, my mom told me to wash my hands in private and in public, right? But, but uh, you understand the concept. It's not, where is that written? As far as I know, it's not a law. Now, it may be a law guideline for medical professionals and certain employees, yes. It's not a law on the books that says American citizens shall wash their hands. Now, maybe it is, you can correct me afterwards. 
Obviously, it's a really good idea. And it's a law that everyone agrees with, almost everyone. Right? But when someone breaks that law, it bothers you. So whether it's written down or whether it's in the the minds of people, it's something that if a person breaks, it offends you. It hurts you. In a small sense, maybe, or in a large sense, it attacks you. Okay, now I got the reason why I'm going so slow with this here this morning about this is because this is a major problem in America. I'm offended. I'm offended. And there's two schools of thought. One school says, I'm offended means that I'm a better person. I'm a victim, and so I have rights. I'm entitled to you treating me in a special way. I'm offended. They think that they can just be offended about everything. But the other group says, I don't care if I offended you. It doesn't matter. Deal with it. And can I humbly suggest to you this morning, both of those groups are wrong. Both of them are wrong. And we'll see that here in a moment. We're told in Scripture that God wants us to be sincere and without offense. There's expectations that people have. And what happens when you're insincere, often you end up offending people unknowingly. If you are not straightforward with your life, you are going to lead people into a place where you will offend them. Well, they shouldn't be offended. You shouldn't be insincere. I'll give you an example. Abimelech. Abraham and Sarah went down to, into Egypt, and Abimelech was down there. Into Gerar, rather. Gerar. They went down in there, and, and, and Abraham knew that his wife was really good looking, and he knew that all the guys wanted her, and so he said, let's do this. You're not my wife, because if you're my wife, uh, then they're going to kill me so they can have you. I'll tell you what we'll do. You're my sister. Say you're my sister. And I guess then they won't kill Abraham. I don't know. But just say you're my sister, because I don't want anybody killing me. I don't want anybody hurting me. So he did something that protected him in his mind. And overtly, maybe publicly, he's saying, I'm protecting her. I want to help her. But he was really protecting himself. So he was the husband of this woman. But he wanted to everyone else to think that he wasn't the husband of this woman. And so he said, you say it, I'll say it. I'm, we're not married. And so he lived a life of insincerity. By the way, if you're, if you're living together, you ought to get married. Right? Why? Other than that, it's, it's insincere. Your public life and your private life, they need to come together. Okay, so Abraham said, well, she's not my wife, even though she was his wife. And you know what Abimelech said? When Abimelech found out that Abraham and Sarah were married, Abimelech actually said to him, it's the first use of the word in Scripture. What have I offended thee? What did I do to attack you that you had to be insincere towards me? Why did you do this to me? You know what Abraham had to do? Abraham had to say, you're right. I'm wrong. She is my wife. I did it because I was scared. And she's kind of like my sister. He tried to justify it. At the end of it, Abraham got right with Abimelech and God blessed Abimelech and Abraham because they restored the relationship. That's what's so important in our lives is that we can say honest things in our marriage, in our relationship. But it's not just 
giving it what, everything that you got and telling them every bad thing they've ever done and said. It's also being without offense. Sincere and without offense. Some of you go to work and you're not sincere. There's something that bothers you, something that people do. They push you around and you will not sincerely stand up. You better be careful with that. You could live a double life as a Christian. I'm not saying that every little thing that bothers you, you're going to stand up and yell because you have to be without offense. But why pretend to be a Christian if you can't be honest when you're at work? You say, well, I don't want anyone to be offended. You better be careful. If you keep living a double life, somebody's going to push you and you're going to blow your stack and then there's really going to be offense. What does that mean? If someone takes advantage of you, it's not Christian for you to pretend like it didn't happen. I'm not saying that every little thing someone says, you know, oh, goody two-shoe, don't talk to me that way. I'm a child of the king. No, that's not what I'm saying. Yes, you will bear persecution. Yes, you will be uh, talked about, lied about. But you've got to be careful that you don't sell the truth out because you're too afraid to stand up for it. Because listen, believers, there is a place, there is a place in your life, a seat reserved for truth. And you better not give that seat to anyone else. What does that mean? If something, if someone is taking advantage or someone is lying or someone is, is bullying you, pushing you around, not, not allowing you to get what you know is rightfully yours, just make sure that you've done what you can. You say, Bible example, Paul, about to be beaten, and he turns around and says, is it lawful for you to beat a man that is a Roman, uncondemned? You know what happened? He eventually went to jail anyhow, but they didn't beat him. Why? Because he stood up for the truth. It was true that he was a Roman citizen, and it was true that you're not allowed to beat a Roman citizen unless he goes to court. And so Paul stood up and said, this is what it is. You see, we live with this idea that Christianity is just basically taffy. You can stretch it, you can push it, you can melt it, you can do whatever you want to. It goes wherever. And, the re- and you wonder why nobody respects you at work, because you don't respect the truth. Stand up for what is right. But then the Lord makes sure that we also balance that with without offense. It's a whole lot easier to do one or the other, isn't it? It's a lot easier to be a mealy-mouthed Christian, to be a pushover, to be basically uh, an amoeba that can morph and form into anything, and you just don't want to offend anybody because that's Christ-like. Jesus was not concerned about offending the money changers when he went into the temple and overthrew them. If I came down to your pew right now and I grabbed your Bible and threw it, you would be very offended, and rightfully so. What do you think those guys and the money changers were doing in the temple? Why do you think they felt when Jesus came in and flipped over their table? He wasn't angry, anger, uh, angry and sinful. He was angry without sin. He loved the truth. He loved his father. So, Christian, I'm going to encourage you. Strengthen your heart in the truth. Love the truth more than you, than you love your comfort. Be willing to say, this is what is right. Now, if you do this correctly, you're still going to be made fun of. 
But at least you'll have in your heart knowing this, that I don't have two personalities working in my heart. I've got me and me alone. And who am I? I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Christ works with you. He is in you. He goes to work. He is in effect an employee of the company that you work for. Well, it's not Jesus. It's me. Well, who are you? You follow what I'm saying? You see, what God wants us to be is whole, to be one instead of two different worlds and two different lives. You live one way at church. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. And you you live another way at, at work and another way at home. Pull those things together. Be sincere. Be without offense. You see, expectations are the problem. Expectations. Feeling offended. Israel was offended that Jesus came as a servant. Jesus was offended by by Peter. Do you you remember that? Jesus said to Peter, thou art an offense unto me. Sometimes we say, well, you don't be offended. We we should, nobody, all they that love the law, you know, they, they that love thy law, nothing shall offend them. Jesus was offended. He was offended by what? He was offended by Peter's lack of understanding of the father's plan for his life. It bothered him and he stood up for it. Paul's not praying that the Philippian believers wouldn't be offended. He's praying that they would not cause someone else to be offended. Herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. I want you to take your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we're going to close this morning. Paul's praying here that the Philippian believers would not offend to be without offense. Now, he says in verse 31, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, Do all to the glory of God. Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. I'm so thankful the Lord included in Romans chapter 12, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, be at peace with all men. You know what that that means? What Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is that you can do everything possible to not offend someone and they will still be offended in some cases. As much as possible, as much as lieth in you. There are some people, according to Romans chapter 1, that are implacable. They are unwilling to make peace. They will not be at peace. They will push back. There are some people who say, I don't care how much you bend over backwards to help me. I will not meet you halfway. I will not reconcile with you. No, no, that's that. that there's nothing you can do with that person. Some people say, well, can, can we, can, you know, can't we work out our marriage? Can't we try? No, I don't want to. There's nothing you can do. Well, well, well why are you leaving the church? What can't you stay? No. It's implacable. You know what the Lord wants us to do? He wants us to reconcile. He wants us to work through our differences. 
He wants us to be sincere and say what we actually are bothered by. And then he wants to make sure that we don't offend that person. You see, it needs be that offenses come. They're going to come. But woe unto that man by whom the offense cometh. So yeah, you may be in a relationship that can't be reconciled. Just make sure it's not you that won't reconcile. Make sure it's not you that won't come back to the peace talks. Make sure you're the one that says, I'm willing, God, if you'll help me, I'll try to do this. I'll stay at the table as long as possible. Even if it means I die to myself and my dreams and everything. I'm not talking about being in an abusive relationship. You've got to say that nowadays. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying if you can recognize that Jesus Christ died for your sins, he was delivered for our offenses, the Bible says. And if he could die for your offenses, then I can suffer some pain because of your offenses. I can learn to take wrong and suffer. But I want to make sure that I'm sincere, that I'm saying, just so you know, you're hurting me. This hurts, but I don't want to offend you. I don't want to strike against you. I don't want to break the law. Whose law? Sometimes I can't do anything about the law in your mind. Your expectations are this, and I don't know what they are. But I've got to be very careful that I don't break the law of God. God's given me a directive, and that is to be at peace with all men as much as I can. Especially when it comes to the lost. Notice here, he says, neither Jews, in verse 32, nor the Gentiles, nor the church of God. To be sincere and without offense is the desired condition for the believer at the judgment seat of Christ. When Christ returns, you know what that means, believer? You may have to do some self-study today and say, I've been living a double life. I've had two different egos that I adopt. I'm like Superman. Or, or it may be that you have to say, you know, there's some things that I've done to my brother, my sister, my mom, my, my dad, my kids, my spouse, my coworker. There may be something that I have done that has offended them. I have broken their expectations somehow. Well, they need to get over it. Believer, you don't want to die with that on your conscience. You don't want Jesus coming back with some unfinished business. What's he going to do? He's not going to cast you into hell. He's not going to stiff arm you, but you're going to find there is an area of your life where you didn't bring glory to God. And in case of an unsaved person, you push them further away from God because you were unwilling to be sincere and to apologize for the offense. And if you'll do that, if you'll have a spirit that says, I don't have to always be right. I don't have to be the one that everybody looks at as so great. I can humble myself. I am who I am in my flesh, thank God I am who I am in Christ. And I'm willing to say, yep, I messed up. And I seek your apology. Will you forgive me? And then I'll do my best to make sure that I don't push that again. That I don't keep poking the bear. That I try to be sincere and without offense. Are you without offense? Does it even bother you if you've offended someone? Have you destroyed someone's rightful expectation of yourself? If you have, you have an opportunity this morning to humble yourself to God 
and allow him to minister his grace and mercy in your life so that you can go out and do the same. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me this morning?